This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm crazy grateful for all of you who subscribe, share, and leave reviews. If this is your first time, welcome to the Elevate community. Like our home church, Living Word, I and the Elevate leaders work as hard as we can to build an atmosphere of love to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. It would mean the world to us if you helped us get the word out by sharing this episode on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate, visit us at iloveelevate.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do, which brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. What's going on, Elevate? Welcome. Welcome to the best night of the week. So glad y'all are here. Thank you. Thank you for waving back. What's up, James? How you doing? Man, this series has been a challenge for me. I've never done anything like this before. It's a very different style of series than what I'm used to. I feel like I'm way out of my league. The research involved has just been interesting and painful. But it's been so fascinating. See, whenever we first started this out, and I pitched out the question to the the Elevate student leaders, and I said, would you guys like to do a series on how we got the Bible, and can we trust it? Everybody was like, yay! And I didn't realize at that moment that that was not a short answer. It's actually a very long answer, a very long path that weaves through the centuries, and it's a path that is spattered with blood, with people that gave their lives so that we can not only know Jesus, but that they could pass his word on to us. There's a a story in the Bible that's always bothered me. It's King David, and he has his mighty men around them. And they're just having victory after victory after victory. And his men revere David so highly that David is considering this well in a city that's been taken by the enemies. And David, just in passing, is talking to himself, and he says, Oh, I wish I could have a drink from that well again. And David's mighty men are like, Err? And they, in the middle of the night, without David's permission, go fighting into enemy territory, chopping their way through the bad guys all the way to that well to bring back a drink of water for David out of reverence and love for their king. And David is furious. The fact that they would risk their lives for something like this. And he takes the water and he pours it out on the ground in front of them. Does that bother anybody else? Like that, that, I'm like, man, these guys risked it all. At least, like, savor it in front of them. Toast back to them. Split it into cups. Whatever you got to do. Like, And I think that that same thing bothers me whenever we look back over the history of the Bible and what it took for our forefathers in the Christian faith to communicate to us, to pass on God's very word to us. Many times, we leave our Bibles dusty or unread or we just are apathetic about it. And it's just like David. This thing that was worked so hard that people gave their lives, that they gave their family members, that this path spattered in blood to give us God's word for our salvation for eternity. And we're like, yeah. Tonight we see so many of those people that cared enough to give us God's word and to give it to us in purity. That it's rightly interpreted. God's God's word has two purposes. The first purpose is that it gives glory to him. The the Bible speaks crying out, the Lord reigns. He is worthy. He is holy. He is glorious. 
And the second purpose is that it is his self-revelation to us so that we can know him. And the Gospel of John argues that knowing God is having salvation. Not knowing him like we know his name, but knowing him as in a relationship with him. And that's God's word that's been carried through the generations for you and I. It has those two purposes. We genuinely believe as Christians, 1 Peter 1.21, where it says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the very words of God through the power of the Holy Spirit writing through human authors. And over the last two weeks, we've been talking about Jesus spoke it, the disciples or the apostles wrote it, the generation after the apostles attested to it, they, they um, revered it and said, yes, that, those were Jesus' teachings. The generation after them were the ones that had to defend Scripture against heresy, against those who were corrupting Scripture. And that's where we left off last week. When we talk about a canon, this is the canon of Christianity. A canon is the list of books that Christianity recognizes as the Word of God. And they are the complete, the 39 Old Testament books and the 27 New Testament books. And we have been working our way towards when did they seal the canon and say, this is it. This is the complete Bible not to be added to or taken away from. And we're going to cover that tonight. The process of canonization was slow. It was organic. And it was handled with great care and scrutiny. The church did not place authority onto these books. It did not say, I like this book a lot, therefore I'm going to say God wrote it. No, the church forefathers recognized the authority that was already on these books as the very teachings of Jesus Christ. Tonight we're going to talk about those church fathers that canonized the 27 books of the New Testament, how the church fell into heresy for like a thousand years as it rose in power and then it tried to protect itself by suppressing Scripture from Christians, and then how it called for a reformation to get back to Scripture and make Scripture accessible to everyone, and how it came into our hands. As sort of a side thought, I want to open up tonight with this idea that, strangely, back in the 80s, bottled water became a big deal. And I would love to have been in that meeting when someone said, I got an idea. Let's put water, a little bit of water, into a bottle, and let's sell it for a whole lot of money. And they'd be like, that's ridiculous. We have water in great quantities at very, very low cost. Why would someone buy a small amount of water for a lot of money? And the idea, the selling campaign was, this isn't just any water. This is mineral water. And it's not just mineral water. It is straight from the very spring. And we're like, ooh, I imagine this mountain spring, and there's green Grass everywhere, and there's animals frolicking in the grass, and it's crystal clear. Because none of us actually want to drink from water that's way downstream, where there's like fish poop and deer spit and, and chemicals and radioactive waste. I don't know what's in there. We don't want to drink stuff that we look, hold it up to the light, and we're like, that's not supposed to be in there. We want to drink water from the very top of the spring, right when it comes out where it's freshest and clearest, and most pure. Back whenever the Reformation was going on, their chant, their mantra was, ad fontes, which meant back to the fountain, back to the spring, back to the source. Getting back to Scripture itself. What does Scripture actually say? And can we get the purest, undiluted Scripture possible? And that is what our forefathers fought for. 
So whenever we think of bottled water, hey, let's take a bottle, let's put a French name on it, and let's sell it for a lot of money. The idea is still true for us. We want to get back to the very root, the very source of Scripture, which is Jesus. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says this, and it's a beautiful way to open up the book of Psalms. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his or her delight is in the law, the word, the commands of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like, he gets Im- like adding imagery here. He's like a tree that's planted by streams of water. That very source, giving it strength, giving it purity, that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Scripture, if we're looking at this correctly, is what we breathe. It's what we live. It's what we're rooted in, where we're coming from. It's the scope that we view life through. And you know what? It is a scope without filters on it. That's what's so beautiful about truth and about Scripture. And those who are anchored in that fresh water are prone to health. Jesus in Matthew 7 separates the difference between people who stand on a rock and people who stand on the sand. That when the storm comes, those who were on the rock stood strong and those who were on the sand were washed away. That rock was his very words. Colossians 3.16, Paul picks up on this and he writes, let the word of Christ, that's what this is. This is what they fought for. The word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. God preserved his word through the millennia so that through the diligence and passion of his people who loved his word, we could have it. And I want to open tonight with someone who is absolutely critical. We're going to have a lot of funny names. His first, the first one has a funny name. His name is Origen. Has anyone heard of Origen before? Maybe if you grew up Catholic, you might have heard of him. Origen was an early church scholar and theologian who founded two Christian schools, a major library, and he wrote roughly 2,000 theological works in commentaries, treatises, sermons, and textual criticisms. When he was a boy, he was already so passionate for his faith that under persecution, when the soldiers came to take his dad away and behead him because of his faith, as a little boy, Origen at 16, he wasn't a little boy, he was a teenager, wanted to go with his dad and die alongside his father for his faith. But his mother wasn't ready for him to die yet, so she took all of Origen's clothes and hid them, knowing Origen wouldn't go out into public naked. This is the kind of person Origen was, the kind of person that's ready to rush out and die on behalf of his faith. And this teenager grew up to be a master and a scholar of the Word of God. His most significant work was called the Hexapla, which means sixfold. Origen went and he took the Old Testament. And he lined up the original Hebrew scriptures. He lined up the Septuagint. And he lined up four other translations of the Old Testament. And he put them in columns side by side so that a reader of the Old Testament could get the fullest breadth of what the Old Testament meant. It took him 23 years to translate it and compile it. And it became about 7,000 pages long. A massive compilation. On one hand... 
Origen, as he was writing all of this stuff, became a hero of orthodoxy and an anchor for the early church, defining doctrine and explaining scriptures. And on the other hand, Origen was incredibly controversial. He would get these beautiful ideas, and then he would run with them way out in the left field. And so there's an entire segment of the church that sees him as a heretic. But if you go and study him, it doesn't matter where you land, he is so critical for the next people to come. What did Origen do for the developing canon? Origen was one of the first to acknowledge all 27 books of the New Testament. Although he expressed some doubts about Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and Jude. Following Origen, there came what was going to be the second. Oh, they've been, the Christians have been under persecution, but they're going to go under persecution that hasn't been so bad since Nero. And it's under Diocletian, Emperor Diocletian, who reigned for 20 years, and then he had another emperor named Galerus. Galerus? I don't know. I was reading about it, so I don't know how to pronounce his name. Emperor Galerus got all up into Diocletian's head and said, we need to exterminate Christians. So Diocletian puts out these edicts, and they start burning churches, and they start collecting and rounding up the scriptures and destroying them, executing Christians left and right. Sometimes 10 to 60 Christians were dying every day. Sometimes as many as 100 were dying every day for their faith. Diocletian comes to the end of his life, and he abdicates the throne, and guess who takes over is Emperor Galerus, who continues to persecute Christians. Until 303, as he comes to the end of his life, that guy who spent most of his life persecuting Christians got sick, really sick, to the point that he actually issues an edict of toleration allowing Christians to go back to church and to to live, taking away the persecution. Then, at the very end of his life, in the last six days of his tormented illness, Galerius asked for Christians to pray for him. Whenever he died, Constantine took over, and in 311, Constantine gave Christians full religious freedom, which is both good and bad. It was very, very good because it made it possible for the church leaders to finally get together and hammer out what was going to be the canon. The first character that helps put the canon together, his name was Eusebius. Can y'all say that? Eusebius. And I need a Eusebius. Can I have a volunteer to be a Eusebius? Anybody? Anybody? Wait, wait, who had the hand up first? Kinley? Come on up, Kinley. All right, go back behind the curtain, find Eusebius, and put on the facial hair. We're all going to laugh at you. Eusebius. Eusebius was writing between 325 and 340. And he was alive during the time of that great persecution. In fact, Eusebius was in prison during Diocletian's reign. And when Diocletian died and Constantine took over, Constantine released him from prison and then hired him to be the emperor's personal religious advisor. So what a turn of events for Eusebius, right? Yes, look at that wig. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, wait, grab the paper too. That way people can see how it's spelled so funny. So Eusebius has been hired by the emperor to be the religious advisor. Then Constantine goes, the next step, where you at? Yeah. Eusebius represents a generation of people that helped canonize scripture. Thank you, Eusebius. Man, Eusebius, you got a fro. Beautiful. 
Constantine goes a step further and says, you know what? I want to print, not print because they didn't have a printer yet. I would like to create 50 compilations of scripture. And I want to send them to churches in Constantinople. Eusebius, go for it. I'm hiring you. He gave Eusebius a team of copyists. He gave him two royal coaches to transport it. And Eusebius sat down and studied what were those books of the Bible that the churches overall recognized as authoritative scripture. And he went back and he leaned heavily on Origen and studied all the things that Origen wrote about and put together and laid out this list of books. And he recognized that some of these books were accepted and some of them were sort of like in this gray area. So he created four different lists. Number one list was those that were recognized by the churches. Number two list were those which were disputed. Number three were spurious, like, eh, not really sure who wrote this, if we can trust it. And then number four were the heretical books. And the ones that he included into his Bibles that he was sending out, 50 of them into the empire, were category one, the recognized, and category two, the disputed. And those two categories made up the 27 books that we recognize as the Bible today. And they were distributed by royal carriage into Constantinople. There's even a chance that the Codex Vaticanus that I, rec- that I talked about two weeks ago may be one of those 50 books from 340 that Eusebius created. Thank you, Eusebius. Hang on to the wig. You're coming back up in a minute, but you can go sit down. Give her a hand. Our next character during this time where the the Bible was being canonized is Athanasius. Athanasius lived and ministered during the reign of Constantine. He was a pastor in Alexandria. And every Easter, he would send out letters to all the churches that he was over. And for 39 years consecutively, he sent out his Easter letter. And in 367... He wrote in his Easter letter the scriptures that were recognized, that he believed were recognized by all the churches as scripture, and they were the 27 books that we have in our Bible. And then finally, 30 years later, the churches got together, the churches from the West and the churches from the East got together in a council of Carthage, and they formally recognized, ratified the 27 books we have as the New Testament. So it's recognized, but it needs to get out. And that's where our next character, Jerome, comes in. At this point, the Bible was written in Greek, Hebrew, and Old Latin. And most people couldn't read any of those three languages. So the Pope hires Jerome to translate the Bible into the common language, which was Latin. And so Jerome sits down, and he goes back to the original text to make sure he's getting everything right. And he uses Origen's Hexapla as a reference 23 years later, he had translated the entire Bible. And Jerome's Vulgate, the Latin copy that he used, became the the church standard Bible for the next thousand years. boy Jerome. But how did the Bible get into our hands, English-speaking people? It's a really messed up story. And it starts with really heresy. Paul talked about it, and we referenced this verse last week, 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. Paul writes to Timothy saying, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, 
but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The heresy of being told that you can earn salvation is a really comfortable myth. Why? Because it depends on you. Because it's attainable, it's graspable, it's something that you can count on. If here's my bullet list of my three or four things that I have to say, that I have to do to be saved, then I can check that off. We're doing great. Now what happens over the next thousand years is that as the church under Constantine becomes a political power in growing, this heresy of works theology begins to creep in thicker and thicker, and thicker. Romans 1.18, Paul writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In Matthew 9, Jesus is having dinner with Matthew and a whole bunch of other sinners, and everyone starts judging these people, and Jesus tells them, I want you to go back and look in Isaiah 6.6. Figure out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And whenever they go and they look it up, you know what they found? The first few verses of of Hosea 6 say, is God speaking? He says, I'm going to break people so I can heal them. That was Matthew and his friends. And then the next verses say, but I have judgment against the leaders, the spiritual leaders, because they were thieves, because they were murderers, because they fleeced my flock. And that is what happens over this next thousand years after they sealed the canon. The church began to pull away from its roots of gospel proclamation. And it became tyrannical. When, I, when it became the state religion, the Roman Catholic Church began to grow in this political power, in this heresy of works theology. This church controlled if you'll pay us a certain amount of money, if you'll do these indulgences, if you'll only come and take communion from us, then you can have salvation. And if we don't like you, we'll excommunicate you and we'll take your salvation. The church became this authority over salvation in Scripture. At least it saw itself that way. This focus shifted from emphasizing the Scripture that people were dying for into the, the, the Pope and the priesthood. And the Pope and the priests, they were the ones that could interpret Scripture. And you know what? As soon as they decided that what the Pope decreed was parallel with Scripture, on par with Scripture, then the Pope's decrees began to supersede Scripture. Because Scripture is static, consistent. And if the Pope, who is living in different eras with different biases, can speak on the level of Scripture, he can overrule Scripture. And so what happened was, as all of these decrees and these dogmas got emphasized. In fact, the holy scriptures that they had fought for became disused, where the priests didn't even know scripture very well. And it was here when the church felt that it could control people's salvation. It was here when the scripture was the most suppressed, because if people could read scripture, they could recognize that what was going on was wrong. And so the Catholic Church only allowed the priests to read Scripture. They kept it in Latin, which the people no longer spoke, so that they could maintain control. And it was time for change. It was time for a reformation. 
And it's crazy that in the early centuries, Christians had to watch out for an outward persecution for their faith. But during this season and during the time that we're coming to, Christians are now being persecuted and martyred by Christians. It was a dark, messed up time. One of the very first to stand against the juggernaut that was the Roman Catholic Church was John Wycliffe. He stood against the church's belief that it could grant and and withhold salvation. Since Latin had fallen out of use, Wycliffe wanted to translate the Bible into English so everyone could see it. He knew that the most powerful thing that could happen that would pull the rug under the, out from under the power of the Catholic Church was if people could read Scripture for themselves. And so he wanted to translate an English Bible. He did so. By 1382, he and his associates had translated the entire Bible into English using the Latin Vulgate, Jerome's Latin Vulgate. And they began to circulate it, but the Pope got furious. He passed laws for Wycliffe's Bible to be banned, collected, and burned. Wycliffe was excommunicated, and in 1408, it was made illegal. It was made illegal to read the Bible in English or to translate it without the consent of the bishop. And the bishop was not consenting. And though Wycliffe's Bible was hardly circulated at all before it got shut down and destroyed by the Pope, it reached the right people and planted sparks. His desire to get the Bible back into the hands of people and to get the church back to orthodoxy, back to the root, back to the fountain, back to the truth of Scripture, planted seeds. Meanwhile, something very significant was happening on the world stage. Gutenberg created the printing press, the movable printing press. This was huge. And the first thing that he printed was the Latin Bible. Yay! We can mass produce it, but no one can read it. But he printed the Bible as the first complete book. This was doing three things that were so critical. If we could connect those people that want to put the Bible in English into our hands with the printing press, three things could happen. The Bible could be put out inexpensively. The Bible could be copied exponentially And for the first time in history, the Bible could be copied exactly. Up until now, every manuscript had to be handwritten. It took up to six months' wages to pay for a copy of Wycliffe's Bible because it took months and months to copy it by hand. And every time you had copies, there would be errors, spelling errors, variances between the copies. They were always risking the soundness of Scripture But if we could get the Bible to the printing press in the language of the people, then for the first time in history, it could be copied perfectly, exponentially, and inexpensively. These two parallel things needed to collide. Meanwhile, fired up by the influence of Origen and Jerome was a man named Erasmus. Erasmus was the foremost authority in Greek for his day, and he wrote extensively to expose the abuses of the Catholic Church. He wrote this, The Catholics, instead of repenting of their sins, pile superstition on superstition. 
So he translated and published the Textus Receptus, which placed a new Greek edition alongside a corrected Latin edition because he found that the Latin, the Latin had some errors that the Catholic Church was capitalizing on for their abuse. He wanted everyone to be able to read the Bible for themselves. This is one of his quotes, and I had to edit it. It's a great quote, but for time's sake, I edited it. He says, I would love the Gospels and the Epistles of St. Paul translated into all languages so that not only Scots and Irishmen, but Turks and Saracens might read them. These sacred words give you the very image of Christ speaking, healing, dying, rising again, and make him so present that were he before your very eyes, you would not more truly see him. Erasmus' work is going to become critical. He's lighting this fire. His passion is about to catch flame. Because Martin Luther was moved by Erasmus' passion. And he would push back against the Catholic Church in a way that no one else did. He would actually, in 1517, take 95 complaints against the theology of the Catholic Church, and he would nail them to the very door of the cathedral in his city. Calling for a debate. Calling for a reckoning. Let's open up a conversation. And he was completely ignored. He wanted to translate his Bible into German, the common language of his people. But the church wasn't going to have that. So Luther had to go into hiding. And he translated the Bible into German. So that everyone could read it. And on the platform of Ad Fontes. Luther removed the Apocrypha that the Catholic Church had added in. He wanted to get back to the very root of God's word. And Luther started a fire. And it was a fire that was picked up by William Tyndale. And I need a William Tyndale. Who wants to be Tyndale? Yeah, come on up, Joel. Oh, man, I forgot to have a pope. Does anyone want to be a pope? Oh, yeah, come on up, Aiden. I told you you could be a pope. All right, Aiden, go back there. Put on your pope hat and grab your, your papers. Joel, head to the back. Grab your Tyndale. And his little facial hair thing. Tyndale, moved by the Reformation and Luther's courage. He was a priest and an Oxford scholar. And his dream was to translate the Bible into English. Tyndale, once and for all, get the Bible into English. Where Wycliffe's Bible got stomped on, he wanted to get it out. Tyndale was highly intelligent. He was fluent in seven languages, and he was completely fluent in Hebrew and Greek, making him the perfect translator. Erasmus was his hero, and he found in Erasmus' work the, the, the theology of our justification by faith, not the justification by works, and so he was set on fire. He was moved by Erasmus' words, and he held on to them and made this the mantra of his life, and because of these words, Tyndale was going to die for them. Yeah! Give him a hand. Yeah! It's supposed to be a beer, but you look kind of, you know, okay. you look good. Okay. You're going to roll with it. All right, so, corrupt church leaders. William Tyndale, you can unfold it. Well done. I, I just, this is going to be beautiful. Yep. <laughs> Tyndale. Tyndale Anglican, Tyndale Amish. See the difference? 
Martin Luther was translating the Bible for the Germans in his country. Tyndale wanted to translate it for the English speakers. But he couldn't get approval in England where it was outlawed to translate or print in English or read in English. So where could he go? Where should he retreat for his work? What invention was gaining steam over the last 70 years? The printing press. Where was the printing press? In Germany. So Tyndale bails and escapes to Germany. He spends 12 years translating the New Testament alone from the original Greek, making it the most accurate translation yet. And in 1525, he finished. There, in Germany, where there were hundreds of printing presses, where in England there was only one or two, there in Germany, he mass-produced 2,000 copies of his English translation, and he had them smuggled into England in crates of corn and cotton in food crates to try to get them back to his people. In 1535, he started translating the Old Testament from the original Hebrew. Now, Tyndale had a lot of enemies. He also had a lot of friends. His friends worked hard to keep him safe, but his biggest enemies were the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church. And this is what one of the Catholic bishops did. Because Tyndale, to stay safe, was always moving from city to city and almost never would go into public. He was hard to track down. So a Catholic bishop found a young man who had come from wealth, but had wasted all of his father's money. And this Catholic bishop brought in this young man and said, I will repay every cent that you lost and wasted if you will give me Tyndale. So this young man named Phillips goes to Germany and he tracks down this underground movement around Tyndale and spends three years becoming Tyndale's close friend. Three years as close friends. And one night, Phillips reaches out to Tyndale and says, hey, I'm really needing some money. Can we meet for a lunch in this public place? And Tyndale almost never went into public, but he would for his friend. And together, walking together, Phillips led him down a narrow alley where at the end, the guards were waiting for him. When Tyndale turned to run, the guards were already behind him. Can you imagine the looks they exchanged in that moment? Whew. Three years as close friends leading up to this moment? So Tyndale was arrested. He was put in a dungeon for 18 months until for his execution, they brought him out wearing his priestly garb. And in front of the whole town square of the gathering masses, they scraped his palms, representing a removal of his anointing. They took off his vestments, representing a removal of his priesthood. And they brought him to a cross for him to recant his faith. The Church is calling him to recant his faith. See how twisted this is? And when he would not recant, they tied him to a pole and they gathered lumber and brush around his feet and tied a rope around his neck. And before he was strangled to death and the fires were lit, his last words were, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. And they strangled him and set him on fire for the crime of translating the Bible into English. Now, he only translated three quarters of the Old Testament, so a man named Coverdale came in and finished that translation. 
Thank you, guys. Y'all can sit down, but I'm going to call you back up in a minute. Y'all need to clap louder for that. They stood up here a long time. And Aiden looks good in a hat. Tyndale is called the father of the English Bible because of his importance. Now, after the Reformation had come to an end, several influential denominations, again, the churches warred with each other and actually even opposed each other to the point that they wanted another Reformation. There had come these faulty translations that followed Tyndale's. And so the king at that time, who had legalized Christianity, wanted to create a translation that all denominations could agree on. So he decreed that a new translation would be made using contemporary language, which the scholars from every theological camp agreed was accurate. And he commissioned 54 scholars who worked for six years to create the authorized version, also known as the King James Version. The scholars used Erasmus's work, the earliest possible manuscripts, Hebrew commentaries, and an elaborate set of rules to prevent anyone from impressing their own biases on their work. They also leaned heavily, heavily, heavily on Tyndale's work. In fact, when the scholars were stumped on how to word something, eight out of ten times they would use Tyndale's translation. Because of the extensive resources of having the king's sponsorship, the wealth of scholarly tools available to the translators made their final choice of rendering an exercise in originality and independent judgment. For this reason, the Encyclopedia Britannica says, the new version was more faithful to the original languages of the Bible and more scholarly than any of its predecessors. Whenever they revised the King James Version in 1769, it became the unaltered version of the Bible for over 250 years. It became the Bible that exploded and went everywhere in English for us. Now, it was revised several times under different names. You've probably heard the names, the American Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version. And in 2001, they revised it again using 100 of the most intelligent scholars from around the world and every denomination to create the English Standard Version, which is kind of like my recommendation. This English Standard Version also took into account the Dead Sea Scrolls, which had been uncovered in 1948 that the other versions hadn't accounted for. So it's probably one of the more accurate versions you can find. If you want to go study this stuff out a little bit more, I challenge you to go back or study somehow. Find what was one of the words that the Latin Vulgate mistranslated that the Catholic Church used to promote their theology of salvation by works. And I'll give you a hint. One of the critical ones is Romans 1.17. So your challenge, what was the word that the Latin Vulgate mistranslated? All right, I need a Jesus. Anyone be a Jesus? Do I already have a Jesus? I forgot. Wasn't someone over here a Jesus? No? No Jesuses. Okay, Cole, come, go find Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, and then I need everybody else to come on up. Yeah. No way. Today? What year anniversary is it? Wow, that is so cool. Today, October 6th. That's awesome. Okay, if you were a character last week or this week, go get your outfits and come up onto the stage. Go, 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 go. Andale, andale.
Awesome. All right, jump on up here. Nope, sorry. We don't need Marcion this time. Marcion. All right, guys, quick, quick, quick. Awesome. All right, I need Jesus over here. Jesus, we're calling on your name. Go grab your Jesus papers. Go grab Jesus. Awesome. And I need John. Where's John? Awesome. All right, so Jesus, John, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Eusebius, Pope Guy, Tyndale. All right, so we're summing up three weeks into one visual timeline. This is it. And this is how we got our Bible. Jesus spoke scripture. The apostles, each of these represent a generation of people. It's not just an individual. John and his generation of apostles wrote scripture. So John is not the only one who wrote scripture, but he represents that generation. Polycarp, his generation, they attested to, they verified, yes, those are the teachings of Jesus. Irenaeus, because of heresy, defended scripture. His generation defended scripture. Then we have Eusebius, who canonized scripture. His generation was the ones that said, these are the books that that are God's word. These guys suppressed scripture so that they could have power. Yes, well done. We need like a little glowy halo or something. And then the generation of the reformers brought us back to scripture. They reformed the church. They returned us to scripture. They made it accessible for everyone. Y'all can just hang out. This is the last three weeks. This is how we got the Bible from Jesus into our hands. As a church, we have to constantly return to the purity of Scripture. Back to the source, back to the fountain. That is the teachings of Jesus. Origen's extensive work was foundational in recognizing the canon and the translating of Scripture. The Easter letter by Athanasius in the Council of Carthage permanently set the 27 books of the New Testament as the Christian canon. Religious freedom under Constantine made a way for the church to seal the canon, but eventually become very corrupt. In defiance of the Roman Catholic Church, the Reformers sought to translate the Bible into the common languages so everyone could read it. Their translations, plus the Gutenberg printing press, worked in harmony to make the Bible accessible. And many, many gave their lives for us to have it. All right, you guys can go sit down. Give them a big hand. Like, big hand. Come on. They're awesome. Some of these guys have made life decisions to grow beards someday. As Christians who take our faith seriously, who want to stand for the truth of Scripture, not in a, not in a false interpretation of Scripture, not in what a really loud, exciting preacher says about Scripture or what this convincing podcast says about Scripture, but those of us Christians that want to stand and stay centered in Orthodox Scripture, we need to have two things. And it reminds me of one of my weirdnesses. Anytime I would take people out on river trips as a youth pastor, people always fight over the kayaks. Those one-person little things, you know, the paddle on both ends, and like, yay, I can maneuver and I can go fast. 
Personally, I love canoes. Because canoes force you to have teamwork. Each of you have your own roles. And then when you work together, it's like you're this perfect unit. Now, as you go into a curve, I love watching amateurs. Because as you go into this curve of a river with this current... I love turning around and watching people because their canoe gets swept into the elbow of the curve and the canoe goes into trees and rocks. Spiders are falling. Girls are screaming. I'm laughing. It's just a great moment for me. Because what they don't understand is that your canoe has a keel down the middle. It's kind of like this point underneath. That's why ships are shaped that way, this keel. And if you turn your canoe where you want to go and you bear down with your paddles and give it power, your canoe will pull through this corner and pull out beautifully. That canoe needs two things. It needs to have a keel, and it needs to have power. Now, if your canoe is flat bottom, and you go into this thing, you could paddle your brains out, and you're going to have a really hard time not drifting, because you need to cut through the water like a knife. But if you had a keel and nobody's paddling, you're still going to get sucked into that corner. You've got to have both. That keel that gives us direction is Scripture. Ephesians 4.14 No longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What's he saying? He's saying that if you are someone that just gets swept up because that preacher, that podcast, that YouTube video, what that person has to say, that argument on YouTube, whatever it is, that just sweeps you away and now you're convinced that easily, that's a sign of being a childish Christian. An immature Christian. An immature Christian is someone that stands firm. You see, an immature Christian is not open-minded. An open-minded person just takes on board everything. A, a, a mature Christian is someone who finds truth, stands on truth, and closes down to fight for that truth. That's who we are called to be. Now, that is our keel. To find scripture to find truth, to stand on that truth, and not get swept around by every doctrine, not get pulled into the elbow, into the weeds, into the rocks, into the spiders of heresy and misteachings. The second thing we have to have is we have to have a power of keep paddling, of keep going, of constant effort, of intentionality. Jude, verses 3 and 4, reads like this. This is the brother of Jesus talking. We should pay attention. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation... So what was his initial plan in writing this letter? I just wanted to high-five about how cool our salvation is. But he gets sidetracked because he needs to emphasize something. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend, to fight, to stand for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Where are these people? In the church. They've crept in. They were subtle. They were undercover. They twisted things subtly. They've crept in unnoticed. And who are they to God? They were long ago designated for condemnation. They're ungodly people. God had already marked them out. Nope. I see what you're trying to do to my people. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We have to be paddling. We have to constantly fight to get back to center. Because we're surrounded in a culture that's going to pull us this way and it's going to pull us this way. And we've got to stay paddling so we keep our keel pointed in a very clear direction and we stay intentional. I like what Matt Carn says. He says that we keep the boat from hitting the shore. We have to stay centered. Sometimes we can be like a pendulum and we we start getting really excited about over here. 
And then we get really excited over here. But for us to stand strong, to contend for the faith, to stay powering so that the nose of this thing goes where it's supposed to go, we have to keep paddling. We have to keep coming back to Scripture. We have to be that person who has planted our tree by the waters. Blessed is the man or woman. His and her delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. And all he or she does, they prosper. Challenge number one. If you don't have a Bible and a translation that you can read, you need to get one. Go find an Elevate Leader. We will direct you to one. I've got some Bibles here that you can grab. They're ESVs because, again, that's like my recommendation. Challenge two. This was our challenge two weeks ago. Have a Bible study and select a verse to memorize. Start internalizing. Grab a verse. Say it to yourself all day. Make this the water you're anchored into. This verse. Contemplate it. Chew on it. Pray the Holy Spirit will reveal truth to you in it. And challenge number three is I'd like you to get on YouTube and find Pastor Ben's sermon from this past Sunday morning where he deals with being the kind of Christian that doesn't get carried away with heresy. It was a fantastic sermon and it's titled Destructive Heresies. So get on YouTube, type in Living Word Church, Destructive Heresies. It's the first one that comes up. It's time that we reform our outlook on the value of the Word of God. William Tyndale says this, and he's in a time when it was illegal to read the Bible in English. Don't despair or let it discourage you, reader, that it is forbidden to you with the punishment of losing your life and belongings, or that it is counted as treason to read the Word, which is health to your soul. For if God is on our side, it doesn't matter who is against us. May we be the people that have a keel and that keep paddling, that stand on truth and we stay consistent and intentional in it. Elevate. May you be the tree planted by the water. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for giving courage to your people again and again and again. Thank you that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you brought your word to us. Lord, I pray that through that same Holy Spirit, you will ignite passion in us for your word, that will hunger for it. Oh, Lord, we love you. Lord, I pray that you will move childish, immature believers in this room into being mature hungry, steadfast believers. The kind of believers that are serving because they're intentional. They're paddling every day. They're pointing their their canoe in the direction of truth. Oh Lord, that we would be a youth group of leaders, of people that contend for truth. Lord, we love you. Mature us, Lord one day at a time. In your holy son's name, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. 
Episodes are recorded every Wednesday at Elevate Student Ministry. All students, 7th through 12th grades, are welcome.